Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 8, verses 1 to 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, today is our honor to have Aaron White um, to be with us um, to share the word of God. Um, so our street ministries director, David, and the youth group, Kira, uh, some of the youth, they have been collaborating with Jacob's Well um, for some of the Fridays. So it has been a joy um, to, to serve and to collaborate with you guys. And a little bit of introduction. Uh, so Aaron, you are the resident theologian of Jacob's Well. And Jacob's Well is a faith-based nonprofit organization located in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And they seek mutually transformative friendship with those on the margins of society and equip others to do the same in their own context. So we are so blessed to have you here so that we can listen to God, what God is doing in your life, in the team's life, and in your ministry. And also we can learn um, um, from, from you. Um, let, let's pray for you, Aaron. Dear God, we are thankful for Aaron's, uh, Aaron's life and his ministry. Lord, today, this morning, as we listen to his preaching, Lord, I pray that may your spirit speak to our heart, Lord. Um, help us to learn and to know how can we be a faithful disciples um, in our city, in our community, Lord. Um, yeah, bless um, the whole preaching sessions and bless our service today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, sisters and brothers. Your call to worship this morning was Psalm 133. How wonderful it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It is like oil descending upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron. <laughs> feels pointed. Feels, you don't know how many times I've had to deal with that. I did put on beard oil this morning just in case you were wondering. Uh, yes, I do bring you greetings from the downtown east side and from Jacob's Well where I am the resident theologian. That is a very highfalutin title for what I do because uh, sometimes that means I'm first in with the mop when the toilet overflows and that's important. Because theology that isn't incarnated, that isn't embodied, that isn't uh, embedded within a context is fairly useless. It's just nice imaginings. It's only when we actually incarnate, when we put the flesh on our theology, that it really matters in this world. And so that's what we try and do at Jacob's Well. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful privilege that we get to do there. Um, and... I'm excited that you are going through this series, Seeking the Peace of the City, and listening to your neighbors. I think that's a really essential thing that a lot of churches um, sometimes fail to do. Uh, they don't know their neighborhood all that well. And, and neighbor is an incredibly, a vitally important category in Scripture. 
If we don't take seriously that word, neighbor, then we have missed a large chunk of what Jesus is talking about. And that means we actually have to get to know, we actually get to know our neighbors. So when people say, what do you do? You know, I've been living in the downtown east side with my family for the last 20 years. What do you do? What is your ministry like? I say, we pray and we try to be really good neighbors. That is what we try to accomplish. So I like that you are looking at that and asking people to come and share about the city. Um, as has been mentioned, your youth group has been coming down once a month to the downtown east side to join us uh, with Jacob's Well and They've done that really well, I can report back to you. And I don't actually say that lightly. I'm not buttering anybody up. Because if they had done it badly, I would tell you. Uh, honestly, I would. Uh, they, they've done it very well. And I mean in that, that they have come with the right posture. They have come with a posture of humility, a posture of learning, a posture of non-haste. That they haven't felt like they have to come and save the downtown east side. Strangely, and this was a shock when we first showed up in the downtown east side, Jesus was already there. That's a problem when you think you're going to bring Jesus to a place and you discover he's beat you to it. Now what do you do? We've discovered that it's a great place to meet Jesus. And I think that's what the young people are discovering as well. And we have set them some challenging tasks and thrown some challenging questions their way and they've handled it admirably. So well done to the teens and especially to the, the youth leaders done a really good job so well done and one of the things that they've been learning and that we've been learning and that hopefully you're learning through this series is that context really matters your neighborhood your context your city where you are living out your life where you are living out your faith this really really matters because it is a big part of the lens through which you ascertain truth and it is a big part of the lens through which you communicate truth and if you don't understand or know your lens, well, you're going to be fooled. You're going to miss things. We need to know our context, where we come from, our neighborhood, our city, our land. All this has a way, has an effect on the way that we understand things. So I've lived in the downtown east side for 20 years, again, with my family. So I know the downtown east side pretty well. Uh, but I wasn't born in the downtown east side. I was born right over there at St. Paul's. Back in 1976, back there. And uh, I wasn't raised in the downtown east side. I was raised in Kitsilano on the Squamish territory, uh, raised there. It's a different neighborhood than it is now. I don't know how familiar you are with Kitsilano. Uh, I lived in social housing in Kitsilano, which is like a crazy thing to say right now. But that's where I grew up in social housing in Kitsilano. And eventually that was destroyed and it was replaced by a spa for dogs. <laughs> So I was gentrified by dogs. We were kicked out. But uh, I was raised there, but I started working in the downtown east side when I was 18 years old. I was far too young, but I started working in a shelter in the downtown east side for the Salvation Army at the age of 18. And it was kind of a family business, to be honest, because uh, my father and his father, my grandfather, had spent a lot of time in the downtown east side. Um, not working in shelters, but in different pubs and getting into different kinds of trouble. Yeah. My grandfather had come back from the war, and he came back a very bitter, angry, violent, alcoholic man. And became a very abusive man to my father, who grew up and followed in his father's footsteps into alcoholism and got in a lot of trouble in the downtown east side. 
But while they were doing that, my grandmother was working for the Salvation Army and working in shelters and working in the prisons and bailing out young offenders and bringing them home and showing them the beauty of possibility and hope. So like a lot of families, it was rife with conflict and tension and, and just a strange reality. But my father met the Lord and he met my mother, his wife, roughly around the same time. And so I never actually knew my father as an alcoholic. His life was totally transformed by the love of Jesus and by the love of community and family. And so I was raised by a father who was not abusive, was not alcoholic. And I can say he passed away in November and we just held his funeral a couple weeks ago. And today would have been his 82nd birthday. And there is nothing that he would have wanted more than for me to be speaking the word of God in this place. So I'm thankful to the Lord for the blessing that I received. That kind of thing happens, and we get to see it a lot. That kind of transformation does happen. So sometimes when we think about the downtown east side, I mean, what are the things that come to mind, right? A lot of poverty, a lot of homelessness, possibly violence, some fear, drug addiction, mental illness, prostitution, all those things are real and true. Trust me, I know them. But there's also another reality that you can't know unless you're there and unless you love the place. And unless you look for the beauty that is there. And that is often what we'll do when young people come down. They'll want to come down and hand out Jesus, parcel out Jesus like little bits of sandwiches. That's what a lot of mission groups do, and they do it badly. We say instead, why don't you come down and look for Jesus? And when you find Jesus in this neighborhood, why don't you love him? And then you can stand on the corner with people and love Jesus together. You can share Jesus together. And that is a way different approach. And that's how we try to approach things. So context matters. We just read Matthew 8, 1 to 4. I'm going to read it again, if that's okay. You can stay seated. Although I do love that you stood under scripture. I think that's a beautiful thing. Jesus cleanses a leper. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So a question that we must ask always when we read scripture, particularly in the New Testament, and I would say particularly in the Gospels, is what is the context for this? What has happened? I know maybe you've experienced this as well. Maybe in Sunday school, you grow up and you learn a lot of disconnected stories about Jesus. And he seems like a really interesting guy. And he did this thing and he walked on water and he cleansed this person. And did, but you don't understand how does that connect to anything? He just seems like one of the better magicians out there. But we don't understand where is the line, how is the story moving from place to place? This is a story. And so this story in particular, Matthew 8, comes directly after Matthew 5 to 7, which is one of the most significant portions of the New Testament. It is the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that it's connected because at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 1, it says Jesus went up the mountain and he sat down and he opened his mouth and he began to teach blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in this passage, Matthew 8, it says, Now Jesus descended from the mountain. So they are very much connected. 
This is the bigger picture. Jesus has been teaching on the mountain, and it's kind of like it's meant to evoke Moses going up the mountain and receiving the law, the Ten Commandments from God. That is what it's meant to evoke, except it's slightly different. Because it's not, Jesus isn't in the Moses position. He's not receiving the law. He's actually in the Yahweh position. He's giving the law. He's saying, this is how you must understand it. And he's really riffing on the law. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He's saying, this is, this is how you have interpreted the law, but let me give you the divine perspective on this. This is how you must walk. He is introducing them and inviting them into a whole new way of being, a whole new way of being in community. And do you know what? It still applies today. Because if Jesus is the very Son of God, if he is God, very God, then his interpretation of the law, probably correct. Right? Probably true. But a lot of us take the Sermon on the Mount and go, well, I don't know, it seems pretty hard. Uh, you know, maybe that's just an interpretation that says this is how far away we are from grace or how far away we are from the possibility of fulfilling that law. And it just shows you what sinners we are. But I think Jesus actually means what he says. I think he actually means this is how I want you to live. If you are my brothers and sisters, if you are my followers, if you are my obedient disciples, if you are my church, this is how I want you to live. Blessed are the blessed, these are the beatitudes. And I believe that Jesus is inviting and inaugurating a new beatitude community, a community of blessing. This feels, I've only been here for an hour, okay? This feels like a beatitude community to me. The way that, that you res that responded to Felipe and the family, I, that felt authentic. Did it feel authentic to you? Yes. Was there an authentic love and an authentic mourning? Blessed are those who mourn. We need to mourn. We need to lament. That's okay. Because if we don't learn to lament with those who lament, if we don't learn to mourn with those who mourn, then we'll never get to rejoice with those who rejoice. I think that Jesus is inaugurating us into a full humanity where we can express the fullness of stuff. I think that's beautiful. I love, I think this is a Beatitude community. One of the ways I know this is I, I met a friend here who I knew 17, 18 years ago. I used to look after my kids. I haven't seen her for 17, 18 years. I said, how long have you been coming here? She goes, about 17, 18 years <laughs> since I left the downtown side. And I'm like, oh, this seems like then a place that has welcomed you. Yeah, it has. Thank you for doing that. That is a, a blessing thing. That I was blessed this morning from that. This is a beatitude community. It feels like it. It feels like it. And, it, and it's the beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are about transformation. This, Jesus is saying this is what holiness looks like, not just as individuals, but as a community together. But have you read the Sermon on the Mount? It's not an easy word, is it? I mean, it's tough. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. It's kind of like I'm saying, okay, well done getting through the day without actively murdering someone. <laughs> right? Is that the extent of the law? He's like, no, I want to go deeper. I tell you, you must not hate someone in your heart. It is, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well done, not actually actively committing adultery. But I tell you, you need to look at the lust in your heart. It goes way deeper. That the transformation is not surface level. The transformation is very, very deep. 
And then he says things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa! Unless you are more charitable than Mother Teresa, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's sort of the equivalent. Anyone going to make it? And then it gets worse, or better, where he says, therefore you must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he's actually quoting the Old Testament there. Therefore be perfect, be holy, as your Father in heaven is perfect and holy. Well, thus ends the lesson. Right? And he comes down from the mountain. And I don't know how people felt. I don't know how the first audience felt about that message. I don't know if they felt like it was really, really good news. Well, unless we can beat the Pharisees at their own game, we ain't making it into the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty rough. Be perfect, okay? All right, how are we going to do that? And then he comes down from the mountain, and the crowd is following him. But I love this. I love this detail. It says a crowd is following him, but there is an individual in the crowd. When we think of people just in terms of the crowd, the horde, the swarm, the parade, right? We tend to generalize, to totalize, and that's very dangerous. Jesus sees an individual. The leper approaches him. And this person is an outcast in every possible way. That is what a leper is, an outcast, physically, socially, even spiritually, Outcast, unclean, unwelcome, impossible. And the gospel is full of these folk. You could almost say, in fact, I will say that the central characters of the gospel are the outcasts. And one of the reasons I can say that is because Jesus is one of them. He is an outcast. These are the main players, is the outcasts. And if that's true, if the gospel, if the main players in the gospel are outcasts, then who should be the main players in our church expressions? The outcasts of the world with Jesus standing at the very center. And not just in terms of outreach, but right at the heart of things. We, I've been doing church and different expressions of faith and mission in the downtown east side for 20 years. And we had a gathering once. And we were up in this old, uh, it used to be a crystal meth lab, but it, we had turned it into a kind of a cool place, and that's where we prayed and worshiped and stuff. And, and we were there, and we were having a very important time of prayer, because God had impressed on my heart to ask the question, do we really have the poor, the outcast, at the very center, the very heart of who we are? Are we really listening to their voice, or are we just kind of playing at church, and every so often they can touch in at the edges? And we were gathered together in a big circle, and I said, we're going to spend the next 10 minutes just silently in prayer considering this question. Are we hearing the voice of the poor right at the heart of who we are? And the moment we started to be silent and quiet, we heard a crash at the door and someone coming up the stairs, and we all knew who it was. It was a friend who we knew had just got out of jail, and she was coming up the stairs, and we knew that if she made it up those stairs, there would be no silent prayer. She was loud. She couldn't control her arms. She couldn't control her volume. And she was yelling as she was coming up the stairs. And we were trying to be quiet and praying. She came crashing in the door and she said, hey, everybody, I'm here. And we said, okay, you're here. And then she came and we were all sitting in a circle. And she came to the person she loved the most. And she picked them up and she hugged her and she kissed her on the face. And she said, I love you. 
she put her back down and then she went to the next person and picked them up, hugged, kissed, I love you, put them back, and then started going around to each person. And we realized this is a force of nature, it cannot be stopped. <laughs> and for about the next 20 minutes, we all just were picked up, hugged, kissed, and told, I love you. And then she sat down in the center of our circle and she said, now, what are we talking about tonight? <laughs> and this was the most unwelcome person I know, the most marginalized person I know. I said, well, I think that, I think that God just told us what he wanted to tell us. But yet, isn't that fascinating? God could have told us that in silent prayer. I believe that. Do you believe that? We could open the scripture and read, hey, you should love, them. you know, we could have done that. But, but God wanted to embody that message. He wanted to pick us up, hug us, kiss us, and tell us he loved us from the most marginalized woman I know. That is what God is like. That is what the putting on a flesh looks like, at least in my experience. And so I asked my Bible study. We have a Bible study that meets every Thursday night down at, Bible, at uh, Jacob's Well, and we, uh, we have lots of people from all kinds of different places come to this Bible study, and I often ask them, what do you want me to, what greeting or blessing do you want me to give to these groups as I come and speak? And, and one gentleman had just attended a funeral for someone who died of a fentanyl overdose. And he said, at the funeral, they said this really impressive thing. He said, this woman, she endured much suffering, and she loved fiercely. And the Bible said, yeah, it said, yeah, could you tell groups this, that we endure much suffering and, not but, and we love fiercely. And they say, could you impress upon them the need to endure much suffering and to love fiercely? And why are we enduring much suffering? And I'm going to just very briefly give you an explanation of some of the suffering in your city. And it's not suffering that just affects the downtown east side. It is suffering that is going across the city, across the province, and increasingly around the world. And I've already mentioned that you will have heard of fentanyl and the opioid crisis, yes? And, and a lot of us have heard of this and we're concerned about this. But we don't know exactly what it is or what to do about it. Or if it's the church's business, I assure you it is. And there's stuff that we should know about this. Between 2011 and 2016, and these are going to be some difficult numbers, okay? Between 2011 and 2016, there were 2,362 confirmed illicit drug overdose deaths in BC. Now, that's a lot between 2011 and 2016. Around 2,300. Hold that number. That was in 2016. In April of 2016, a public health crisis was declared for BC. In the year 2016, there were 639 overdose deaths in the province of BC. Since that time, since 2016, when there was the announcement of a public health crisis, there have been 11,171 deaths attributed to fentanyl in the province of British Columbia. In 2022, there was roughly 2,300 overdose deaths. Remember, 2011 to 2016, roughly 2,300 overdose deaths. 2022, roughly 2,300 overdose deaths. That's roughly 189 deaths per month, roughly six deaths a day. 
This is an epidemic. This is real, and it's getting much, much worse. We um, on the ground didn't need a public health notice to tell us that something was happening. Anyone who was working in the field of addictions, and I've been working with those in addictions for a lot of years, I've written a book on addictions, we knew something different was happening because people used to be able to kind of go into treatment and then they might fall and they go out and they use for a little bit and then they come back in, but people started doing that and they'd go out and they were not coming back in. We knew something new was on the streets, something that was killing people, and that's what fentanyl is. Fentanyl has been detected in 82% of all illicit toxic deaths in 2022. This is a real thing. I have a friend who herself was a, a sex worker and an addict years and years ago, 20 years ago, and she's now a pastor and a mission worker in the downtown side. It's an incredible story. I don't have time to tell you the whole thing, but she, I asked her about a month ago, I said, how many people have you personally brought back to life? And she goes around with the Naxalone kits, Naxalone kits, and she said she has brought 65 people back to life. And that happens on the regular. Every day I go walking and I pray, and most days I have to stop to make sure that someone is breathing. Six people, actually now seven, have died just outside my house. Our kids, who I've raised in the downtown east side, they have learned that you don't pass by somebody on the street if you're not sure if they're alive. And they regularly are checking if people are dead. They know how to do it. They know how to take care of them. They know how to call the EMTs. This is a real issue for our neighbors. And it's not just the downtown east side. Only 14% of the overdose deaths that have happened since 2016 have happened in the downtown east side. That means that there's 86% happening in the rest of BC. It's not just a downtown east side issue. Why? People know the danger. It's not that people don't understand what's going on when they're using these drugs. They understand. Why would then they still use these drugs that are so dangerous? And I'll just take a moment here. I recognize this is heavy. But folk, we need to talk about real heavy, real life things in church. Yeah? And if, if, you're not, if you don't agree, I, I, I would say let, let's read the scriptures even more because the, these, those are real heavy things. A, a leper. That's a real heavy thing that that person has to deal with. And Jesus was not afraid. And what did Jesus do with that person? He touched. You don't touch like this. He touched the leper. So this is real, real stuff. So why would people do this? Why would people still continue to use these substances, these drugs, if they're so dangerous? Well, there's a few ideas, but there's, there's one called the dislocation model. Um, that addiction runs rampant in a dislocated society, which is what we're living in. We're not located. We don't know where we fit. Things aren't quite right. And that was especially true in the downtown east side and everywhere, but especially in the downtown east side during COVID. Um, a study of individuals being treated for substance use disorder found that 77% of the sample had experienced at least one significant trauma as a child. So that has a huge impact, 77%. I happen to know this, that fentanyl and heroin feels like a warm hug. I don't know it personally, but I am assured that that's how it feels. And for the people who I've talked to, they didn't receive warm hugs as a child. They didn't even know what that felt like. But we need hugs, don't we? We actually know 
Medically, we need this. Psychologically, we need this. Socially, we need this. They never received it. In fact, the opposite. From the people who they were supposed to receive warm hugs, they received abuse. And so then they found this product that felt like that. And they didn't even know they needed it. How strong is that attachment going to be? Pretty strong. Addictions issues are hugely compounded by mental health struggles, by homelessness, by poverty. And it all feeds back into each other and it feels very hopeless. Is there hope? Is there hope? I mean, you want to ask that question of that leper, right? Is there hope? Or you might want to ask the question of the woman who was bleeding, right, for 12 years, who just, there's a crowd, and she, she's, she sees Jesus, and she just, all she can do is reach out and try and touch the, 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 his garment. Is there hope? Is there possibility? Yes. I know hundreds of people, hundreds of people who have come out of addictions and are living lives of beauty and meaning and purpose and hope. Some are here today, I'm sure of it. I know it. It is complex. It's a varied situation. There isn't just one answer. We need things like safe and affordable housing. We need things like detox on demand, increased options for mental health. We need all those things. But what about the church? What can we do? What can the church do? What can this beatitude community do to help? Is it your responsibility? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm really asking. Is it our responsibility? Hmm. See, the, this is a, a truism that's said in recovery circles, in addiction circles. And I want you to really hear this. The opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. The opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Well, are we not the people of connection? Or are we not supposed to be the people of connection? Is that not what prayer and worship is, connecting with God? Is that not what church is meant to be, connecting with one another? Is that not what mission Mercy, ministry is supposed to be, is connecting people, inviting people into that connection. Dare I suggest we need a more robust life of connection. And I'm not speaking any kind of judgment on this Beatitude community. I don't know. I'm saying broadly as the church, what if we really were known as that place of connection for people who are dislocated? What if that was the possibility? Because this is what Jesus invites the leper into, not just healing. The healing is wonderful. The healing is miraculous. But no less miraculous is Jesus touching the man. No less miraculous is Jesus actually giving him an audience. No less miraculous is the fact that once he is healed, Jesus tells him, now go and give the offering to the priest. Why? Why does he have to do that? The healing's already happened. He goes and he does it, so he is re-inaugurated into the community into the social community, the family, into the worshiping community. This man will now be accepted, and that happens again and again and again in the gospel. That happens in the book of Acts when the man is outside the gate beautiful, and he's been paralyzed from life, and he can't go into the temple because of his paralysis. And Peter and John come, and they say, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we'll give you. And they grab him, and they hold him, and he stands up, and his legs are strengthened, and the first thing he does is he dances for joy inside the temple courts. Probably the first time in his life he got to go in there. This is what the gospel does. It's not just this miraculous physical healing. 
It is a whole communal healing. Body, soul, and spirit, these things matter. Our context matters. Our embodied nature matters to God. Pinch yourself. Seriously, pinch yourself. That matters to God. Your reality, your physical reality, your social reality, your familial reality, that matters to God or else Jesus wouldn't have taken on flesh. This matters. It's not just theory. Get out the the mop and clean the toilet. This is what ministry looks like. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege. I love that the man comes and says, Jesus, if you are willing, what a question. Another time someone asked Jesus, if you can, he goes, if I can. That's one question we ask, can you, God? But the other is, are you willing, God? Do you love me? And Jesus goes, I am willing. I am willing. I love you. Come, be part of, I love you. And this is a word that those who have been excluded, those who have been marginalized, those who have been othered, need to hear from the people of God. We are willing. You are welcome. And not just theoretically. You are welcome. We want you here. You are a blessing to us. You matter to us. You are loved. Isn't that what we all need? Anybody here need to hear that this morning? You know, we, it's one thing to say, hey, God loves you. But I was speaking to a group of guys once in an addiction facility. I said, hey, God loves you. You know, don't you know this? And, and a guy in the back, an old guy, probably in his 70s, he goes, well, man, I want to know that, but I have never been loved in my life. So I don't know what that feels like. People need to know what that feels like, and they need to know it from us. That is the blessing that we get to be part of. Because those who are in addictions to fentanyl are being invited to lay down the only comfort they have found, the only comfort they have ever known, their addiction. We also are invited to do the very same. Whatever our attachments are, we are invited to lay those things down. But the consequences of that are not quite as immediate or devastating. When we are inviting people to lay down their comfort, we had better be saying truly, along with Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and we will be part of that comfort. We will be the hands and feet that comfort you, that Jesus comforts you through. We're meant to do this in community, friends. I'm going to finish up here. I think it's why Jesus tells that leper to present his gift at the altar. And Jacob's well is a space in the downtown east side where this is what we try and do. We say God has welcomed us to the table. He's invited us to the table. All of us. All of us, without qualification, we are invited to the table. And you're going to spend uh, some time after this being invited to the table. This is the reality. God, through Jesus Christ, by his spirit, has invited us to the table to share in the meal with him. But we are also to invite one another to each other's table and to receive that invitation. And we believe that that's what it looks like. I brought a picture along with me. I think we could put it up there. There we are. This was on this Thursday. This is our Bible study on Thursday. And we had a meal, and get this, there was food from Brazil, Venezuela, Syria, India, and Greece. And we feasted. We just, it was the best, I'm like, this is the greatest Bible study I've ever been part of. This is, it was amazing. And we were, because we're studying the book of Acts, we say that every, it's every tribe, nation, and tongue, and they were a blessing to us. And one of the ways we can know that is that the food is amazing. Thank 
God that it's not just British food. Thank you, God. I don't mean to offend anybody, but my goodness. The flavor of the kingdom, this is what the kingdom of God tastes like. It's so much better. It's so much better when we are blessing one another in this way. This is a very practical thing that the church can offer as a common table. Not just here, though, yes, primarily, but in our own tables, in our own invitation of people who have been othered into our very lives. It's not easy, but it is so, so good. So friends, learn to endure suffering and learn to love fiercely as you receive and embody the invitation of Jesus and Beatitude community. Can I pray for you? Lord, you are good. Your love endures forever. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. I thank you for the invitation into Beatitude community that you have offered to all of us. I thank you for places, spaces, and times where we have experienced that and offered it to others. I pray for more for this Beatitude community, for deeper, for broader expressions of welcome and invitation and holiness, that that seems impossible to us, that level of obedience, but you said, I will, I will make you clean. What seems impossible to you, I will accomplish in you, and I will accomplish through you. Please do that here, today and ongoing, in First Baptist Church. In your name we pray, Jesus, with the power of your Holy Spirit, giving thanks to you, Father. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.